Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens, delving into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 55, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Axie. All right. Well, look at this. Episode 55. We are doing a follow-up to our last episode, which really was a podcast Virtual coffee webinar (laughs) that we did for the College of Physical Therapists in BC, talking about telehealth and therapeutic relationship. And I was a good time. Did you have a good time, Axie? Yeah, I did. And as like as I said when we started the, that podcast, that webinar, it was a bit odd for us because we were doing a podcast kind of format within a webinar and had some slides and we didn't know how it was all going to unfold because normally we just we don't have no. slides, we don't have prompts, we just <laughs> we talk. We just have a conversation normally. And so we we weren't quite sure how that was if it would restrict us or if we would be a spontaneous. And it turns out we were a spontaneous. And part of the reason why we're having, not having to do this, we want to do this, <laughs> but we felt that we should do this sort of follow-up podcast is because we didn't dive into as much as we wanted to dive into in terms of, of setting up different aspects of, of the therapeutic relationship or what promotes a therapeutic relationship and, and especially trying to, you know, consider some things online and with telehealth. So we thought we would do this follow-up. Yeah. And, and we actually had to get the tap on the virtual shoulder, uh, letting us know that we had hit our <laughs> time limit. So, which is not unlike us. I mean, you know, what it is like us is that we just will talk, right? And and we did warn them. We said, you know, it's very possible that you will have to tell us that we are running out of time. And sure enough, yes, it happened. Sure enough. And normally in a normal podcast, we would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk until, you know, it felt like there was a natural ending. And then if it was a long podcast, you would split it up into two different podcasts if that needed to happen. But you can't do that with that format. And so we have reconvened about a week and a half later. It does feel longer than that. But there's a lot that's going on. So <laughs> we're in COVID time. Yeah. It's COVID time. It's COVID time. It's <laughs> Groundhog Day every day. So today we are, as Maxie said, we're going to be diving into a little more detail around some more of the, you know, you know, more of the practicalities, more of the specifics around establishing that therapeutic alliance and really thinking about that within the context of the telehealth clinical environment. Because really, it is just as we talked about last time. It's a, it's a an environment that's different, but it's still just the environment. It's the medium for how we deliver care. And we still need to develop a therapeutic alliance with our patients just as much as when we are face-to-face. And so we touched on a number of topics, but what we wanted to do today is talk about those details. And the first one item is around establishing safety in relationship. So we're talking about that's a term I think that is within physiotherapy or healthcare provider, you know, discourses is getting used more. We want to create safety. We want our patients to feel safe. Well, what does that mean, right? What does safety mean? I think intuitively we have a sense of what it means. But if we are thinking about it a little more specifically, I tend to, to describe it sort of in two interrelated categories. So you have implicit safety, right? And that's that's a safety where through our nervous systems, through neuroception, 
we're scanning, we're constantly scanning our environments as human beings, right? For, for nonverbal cues of safety or threat, right? And I think that we all kind of have, know this, that, you know, when we feel threatened, our sympathetic nervous system revs up, right? To fight or flight, or we go into a dive response or a freeze mm-hmm. response, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't want our we don't want our patients no. doing that, right? <laughs> we don't want them sympathetically activated. Sympathetic activation is good, but not to fight or flight, right? So, and we don't want them exiting, you know, leaving and dissociating on us, right? And so we need to non-verbally convey that we are safe, right? And so, because that is happening unconsciously for us, we're, we're unconsciously scanning our environment. When we get that, that sense of safety, our sympathetic nervous system downregulates, right? Our, our ventral vagal system, parasympathetic nervous system activates, and that opens us up to engaging socially, to forming connections, to engaging in rehabilitation, right? And so, we want that social engagement system activated. Yeah. Right. And so this is work by Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory that I'm bringing into this. And so that's implicit safety, right? Unconscious happening is going on, right? And then we have explicit safety, right? So explicit safety happens more through how we develop as we grow up, what we start to believe about the world, what we start to believe ourselves about ourselves. And essentially that sense that we want to, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, And we want to be able to be accepted. We want to be able to express ourselves, right? And so when we're talking about explicit safety, usually we're building this in a relationship by acknowledging the other person, by attending to them. And it doesn't have to be big acknowledgements. It can be just very, you know, casual, smaller acknowledgements as well. But, But it's a mature way of interacting. And it requires us, both actually require us to be present and receptive. Right. So I just want to say that these two aren't mutually exclusive. Implicit and explicit safety aren't separate, but it just, it's helpful to think about it in, in this way, because I think that a big key to understand is that through our nonverbal behavior, just how we are being in a clinical interaction, we can impact somebody's physiology, right? We can impact, we can help create safety, help them feel safe. And I think the challenge then, if we, if we put the lens of telehealth on that, we are moving one dimension back in terms of that interaction. So moving from a 3D to a 2D environment where we just have a screen that the person is seeing us through may present some challenges in terms of how do we, how do we support that implicit safety. So I, I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are, you know, how does a, how, how does a therapist, you know, practically convey that implicit safety you know, you and I are right now looking at each other on a screen. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm just curious, you know, what, what your thoughts are on that, Maxie? I think a lot of this, the same things that we do in person can be, are, are translated to online, to, to virtual spaces, right? So, you know, the, the distance that you create, for example, if you're, you're moving closer to your screen or you're moving further away from your screen, you can get a tangible sense in your body. If somebody is, is really close to their, to their camera, right? They're, they're in your space and they almost feel like they're more in your space, yeah, yeah. right? Than, than if they're, 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 they're further away, right? So you can actually, especially if you're in a rolly chair, like if you have a roller chair, you can move back and forth, right? And, and get a sense of either by, 
watching nonverbal behaviors from your from your patient or your your client, but also, and this is where this other dimension of of engaging comes in, is that we may actually need to talk more or or ask our our clients more about how they're feeling, what feels good to them, is this comfortable, right? So if you can't pick up nonverbally. You know, for example, nonverbal behavior that somebody is feeling comfortable with the amount of space or the proximity between you and, and that person. If you can't pick up that, you know, they they uncross their arms or they seem to take a breath and they relax a bit, right? If you can't pick that up by watching them, you may have to ask them, is this a good distance? Like, does this feel comfortable for you? Would you like me a bit closer to the camera, a bit further away? And negotiating that space is important because once that actually helps you to start to develop a relationship, you're starting to engage the person in in a collaborative space. I think one of the things that's interesting is that like in a physical space, we're used to the absence of distractions that are present or the distractions that are present, we know what they are, right? If you're in a treatment room and you get a knock on the door for your next patient, you know, you're like you're you're familiar with those those distractions. And I think what's interesting is that when you're in this virtual environment, this is just what I've experienced: is that you know the patient's dog walks across the floor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> their their partner walks in the background, and you know what I mean. Like it, there is there's these distractions that you have to like you almost have to reset that sense of safety and connection with the patient in a way that maybe throws you off a little bit as a therapist, right? Because mm. I'm not used to those distractions. Like I like when I'm in my physical clinical space, I know what I'm dealing with and I can sort I can roll with the punches a bit more. But I thought that's that's what I've been finding is that in these virtual sessions where the environment your patient in is is very different and really you can't anticipate these distractions. And so sometimes they they will disengage because they're distracted and now you've got to you've got to return back to that place of creating safety that's been interesting to experience in these sessions well and i can imagine just you know i think we talked about it actually in the in the previous podcast just how this isn't necessarily we don't necessarily feel safe within these virtual worlds right when you know the therapist doesn't feel safe in our clinical setting you know we feel safe because we know what to expect Right. And the patient feels may feel a bit off kilter because we have that status position within the clinic. But now within a virtual interaction, the patient has more power or has more status because they're in their own space. So so they may, may, may feel more comfortable, but we feel a little more off kilter. Right. Or we may feel or like you said, something will throw you off. And so you have to be able to. So this is all a part of that sense of 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 being responsive within a clinical interaction, because there are no algorithms when we're developing therapeutic relationships. So our ability to be aware of when we get activated, when we actually lose presence, or or we, we aren't in the moment anymore, we've been taken out of that sort of a sense of, of being in the moment with that person. How do we return to that? Right? How do you bring yourself? How do you know when you're out of it? And how do you be compassionate and gentle with yourself and say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, and, and bring yourself back to it? Either with the patient, either acknowledging that maybe with the patient, oh, 
you know, I just, sorry, I just noticed your cat. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you, you know, well, so, you know, does your cat have any, maybe there's a space to talk about their cat a little bit, or maybe it's just acknowledging, oh, that was just, I just got a little bit distracted <laughs> with your cat, you know, can we, can we just re, you know, reconnect here a little bit? Yeah, because I, I had one situation where a patient, you know, I was having him do a few functional movement tests on the floor and all of a sudden his dog just jumps on his chest and I'm like, oh, all right. And he's like, oh yeah, don't worry about him. And like, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, you know, do you need to, you know, move the dog? And, and it's funny because it's true. Like it, that's not a big deal for the patient because that's their environment. Like they could roll with that a lot easier than now I had to adapt to that a little bit. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big, you know, a big issue, but it was one of those things that especially when you are trying to build that therapeutic relationship and you maybe don't, you know, this is the first time you're interacting with the patient. That's a different story with that situation. It was a patient I've known for a long time. So it wasn't, it didn't throw me off too much, but it is interesting just how easy these things happen that really you can anticipate. And I even just think of the distractions that can happen just with your computer. Like you get a text message (laughs) coming in and it pops up and you have a notification and all of a sudden your brain's like, you know, like, what do I yeah. do here? You know, you're so used to like, oh, I'm going to check the notification, but you're like, no, I'm in this session. I need to <laughs> stay present. And it's just, it's so interesting how these, you know, this conditioning that takes place, you know, with our technology, how in the middle of a session can really throw you off in terms of staying focused. And then obviously, you know, that's a learning to say, turn these things off because you don't know when they're going to all of a sudden pop up in the middle of your history taking with the patient. Right. And so I think in the last, in the last podcast, we did talk a little bit about prepping the session, right? So prepping, prepping with, you know, your patient, you know, saying, you know, this might be, be a bit different than, you know, especially if it's the first time that, that you've engaged with them virtually, you know, this might be a bit different. I may be asking you more questions. We may be talking a bit more. I need you to give me a little bit more feedback. So feel free, you know, to do that. But there's also the prepping that you have to do technologically, <laughs> you know, and, and all of those things. But also, you want to know what, here's something like, and I just even, you know, being on different types of interactions on different meetings and whatnot on virtual meetings, you know, I will always tell because I have with the meetings, I have my dog in my, in my office with me. And, and I always say, listen, I have my dog in the office with me. So... If, you know, she's usually really good, blah, blah, blah. But if something, I may just need to, you know, put her out the door or something. You know what I mean? So you might want to ask your patient. So like, are do you, are, are you completely by yourself in the house right now? Or like, will you be able or do you have animals around? That's okay. But just so that I, you know, know what the space <laughs> is like, right? I don't know if that's, if that would be helpful, but. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, you ask, you know, are you at home are you yeah you like i do sort of ask those questions but it's part of it is just to be okay with the unexpected right i think this is the idea of like being able to sort of roll with the punches you know in these sessions and i think it's also just letting go maybe of you know i think we talked about this a little bit the last session is just letting go of some of the expectations that this is going to be exactly like an in-person session right i think you know sometimes we get too attached to it has to be like you know, a hundred percent crossover. And if it's not, then somehow I failed as a therapist. And I think, you know, because again, yeah, like, you know, the dog sits on, you know, on their lap and now throws you (laughs) off from what you're talking about, like that's going to happen, you know? And, but I think what's really interesting is how 
you know, we often think of this as a negative, but it's actually such a positive. Like I, I did one session where I wanted my patient to demonstrate her doing exercise on one of her exercise machines. And in the clinic environment, I never would have had that opportunity because we didn't have that piece of equipment in the clinic. And now she could actually show me live what it was like in her home environment. And to me, it was just amazing the insight that I was able to glean from that and then pull in her partner to help with assisting in some of the you know, movement repattering work. And so it was actually a very collaborative process <laughs> right? and something that wouldn't have taken place if she had just, you know, come to the clinic for a visit. So, so I think that that, yeah, it's like often we think of it as the negative in terms of, you know, the virtual environment gives us less to work with. And I, and I've just seen that it actually can many times give you more to work with. Exactly. And so, yeah, I was just, I just got me thinking about the idea of when you get pulled out of an interaction, you know, and, and how that changes your state, right? And how that changes how you're being in that interaction, right? And so, when we think about different ways non-verbally to create that implicit safety, right? There's that proximity, right? But also the tone of your voice, the prosody, the tone and the pace that you speak at, right? And so, when we maybe get pulled out of a clinical interaction, our voice probably gets higher. We're, we're, we might be speaking a little differently, you know, and trying to regain our sense of, of presence, right? Mm-hmm. And so, the idea of being able to speak in a lower tone, be more resonant, speak more slowly. I know for me, that's actually something that helps me calm down when I am speaking more slowly and with a lower tone than when I'm speaking high, high, with a higher pitch, and I'm speaking really quickly, right? So, I know that that helps pull me back into being present, but it's also picked up by the people that are scanning us for, for nonverbal cues. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I'm curious to know what you think of this, Maxie. I, I feel like with the virtual environment, and I mean, you do this so well because even as we're talking, you know, you're using hand gestures, you're leaning in, you're enunciating, you know, your words, you know, well. And I, and I found that and I think this might be part of the reason why I find these sessions more tiring generally is that you have to bring more of those, that verbal and nonverbal communication. You have to elevate it a bit, I think, partly because I want to make sure that the person is engaged in our interaction. I'm not sure how that ties into creating safety or if it's more of just that desire for collaboration and creating contact with the patient. But you know, I find that that's something that you almost feel like you have to augment somewhat in this uh, type of virtual setting. I tend to agree. I think that paying more attention, I think it, it we start to pay more attention to our nonverbal behaviors, right? And from some of the things that I've read and listened to recently, I mean, we don't have a lot of literature on this, right? But, you know, some of the things that I've read and, and you know, different things that I've listened to uh, podcast-wise, the actual, yes, pay more attention to if you are like nodding, agreement, or actual facial smiling, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Those sorts of things. Making eye contact, right? Like looking, like not looking down, writing, you know, but looking at the person. And I think it's funny because we don't necessarily pay attention, get to pay attention to our nonverbal behaviors when we're in person because we can't see ourselves. But right now I'm on camera. I can see myself. Hey, Andrew here. Just a quick break from the podcast as I wanted to let you know about an innovative web-based tool that I'm building that's going to help optimize your treatment approach and achieve better results with less stress. 
The reason I'm building this app is to help myself and other therapists more deeply understand our patients so that we can avoid the potential pitfalls that can jeopardize treatment outcomes. So much of what impacts treatment is hidden below the surface, and this tool will help adjust how you approach each patient based on who they are. Think of it as Outcome Measures 2.0. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to sign up to get my latest updates. All right, back to the show. Right. I, I can see what I'm projecting yeah. to people, you know, and and so that could actually be very helpful because, I mean, for me, I'm a very animated person, so I might actually freak some people out. <laughs> Kelly, this works well in this environment. <laughs> yeah, if I'm, if I'm freaking it out, like, you know, I, I need to watch how that person is is reacting to me. But I think that, that for people who maybe are a bit more aren't as animated or a bit more subdued in that way, it could be very educational as well to see how you project yourself to other people non-verbally. It's not that you have to be a mime or anything, like you have to be super duper physical mm-hmm. and animated. But yeah, you know, nodding more, smiling more potentially, tilting your head, you know, those sorts of things. Are you doing that? Or are you sitting rigid and just listening? So I think it's educational. And I think part of it too is that when we're looking at someone through a screen, you know, even when I look at you right now, it's somewhat clear, but it's not, it's a little bit fuzzy, right? Like it's not, it's not crisp hundred percent. So the thing is, I feel like some of that exaggeration of maybe the nonverbals has to be there because you're not going to necessarily pick up on some of these nuanced things that you would see if you were face to face. Yeah. And so I think that that might be, you know, something to think about is maybe I need to maybe elevate and maybe exaggerate. It, may, it might feel a little bit uncomfortable for you, especially as you were saying, if you're someone who is more subdued and more reserved in, in how you communicate. But you have to recognize that some of that communication is lost in the transmission. And so in order to, to get it through, you might have to amplify a little bit in terms of some of those things so that the person can actually pick up and receive what you're actually trying to communicate from a nonverbal standpoint and obviously from a, a verbal standpoint as well. And even your mm-hmms. Like, you know, like that's a, that I believe that's considered a nonverbal. Mm-hmm is not a verbal. Right? So, <laughs> marginally verbal. <laughs> it's marginally verbal, depending on yeah, your state. Yeah, exactly. It can be the most verbal I get all day. <laughs> you know, you're mm-hmm, you're nodding. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. That sort of, those sorts of acknowledgements can be important as well. But I think you hit on something. It might feel unnatural for people to sort of exaggerate that. First and foremost, your responses, whatever they are, need to be congruent, right? So, so they need to be congruent in the situation. So you shouldn't be, you know, nodding and laughing and smiling if somebody is telling you something that's really distressing, right? So, so I think that, that whatever you're doing, it needs to be congruent. And yeah, you need to play with the volume of that a little bit and reflect on that. I think about, you know, just as we're talking, I think about stage actors, right? You know, and how they're, presence on stage is different than when you're watching actors in a movie, right? Certainly not suggesting that that's where we go. We don't get Shakespearean <laughs> yeah. necessarily. But but you know, there's there's a difference in projection, I think when you're when you're in different environments. Yeah, and again, there it's like you're dealing with a live audience and you need to make sure that the audience can actually capture the tone, the emotion, you know, the content of what what you're delivering. So I, yeah, I think that totally makes sense. You touched on this idea of receptivity when you were sharing about implicit safety and explicit safety. And I was wondering if we could maybe dive into that a little bit as it relates to the telehealth context here. Yeah. So like being open, 
be, having an open attitude is one be one way of being receptive, right? So suspending judgment. I think that we can do that. And I think that, you know, in an odd way, <laughs> we can convey being, we can convey that we're judging somebody through our non like I, because I'm so animated, my face will give me away. <laughs> so, so actually, I'm not good at poker. So actually, <laughs> Seeing my nonverbals could be helpful <laughs> so that I'm, I'm not projecting judgment through my nonverbals. But also, also that the idea of, yeah, being what we typically want to do is, is, is not, is be open to people contributing and collaborating with us and facilitating that. And also, yeah, suspending our judgment with, you know, things that they might tell us. So there's that type of receptivity. But then there's, there's also, what we've talked to, what we've been talking about is really trying to be attentive to cues, right? So they could be nonverbal cues that might be more difficult in the virtual environment. And so it really listening to what people are saying, listening to their stories, being open to, to their stories and what they're saying. That's also a part of receptivity as well. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that ties into how we listen, that reflective listening, that active listening, whatever you want to call it really engaging the patient and, and knowing is what you're saying, am I understanding that accurately, right? And I have a hypothesis of what I think you're saying and what you're meaning by what you just said, but can you can you confirm that or can you let me know if I'm on the right track, right? Absolutely. You can do that in virtual or physical environments, right? I mean, that's, that has nothing to do with the fact that you're fr- sitting in front of a computer screen or sitting in a clinic room, right? I think that that I mean, I think to me, I, at least from my from my experience, I feel like it that hasn't been you know a very big shift, and it's something that adapts well across the board. And in actuality, it may we talked about this before. You may have more opportunity to open up the story and be receptive in that way, and that could feel uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> because you you might have more time, and so so and and it's and it's unadulterated. It's it's focused time with somebody, and so. It can be a little bit scary to go, okay, let's let's open up and tell me tell me some more about that or 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 open up the the space for for people to be able to start telling their story and then really listening to it. Like really listening to it because you want you're listening to understand versus listening to provide a solution, right? A story listening to a story isn't about providing a solution. Yeah. Right? Listening to a story is about getting to know that person holistically. And so you're listening, you're tracking what they're saying, and you're making contact with certain things. If something that you hear sounds really important, they use a phrase that is, is you, you go, wow, that was intense, how they just described that. You may point that out to them. You may ask them to describe that a little bit more. That seems really important. Can you describe that relationship a bit more or the relationship with your, with your boss a little bit more? Or can you describe how that made you feel a little bit more? I think we got a question in the last podcast or well, how do you open that, open up the story, right? And it, and it doesn't have to be, in my mind anyway, it doesn't have to be rocket science. It's really just being curious and making contact and really being present and, 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 and listening for, for parts of the story and then asking them to expand on it. And being okay with it, maybe going down a path that doesn't fit your path. <laughs> You know, I think that sometimes we we ask questions because it fits a particular path that we're trying to go down, right? And I think part of the challenge is that you can be afraid of asking a question or digging into something because you're like, no, 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 that's going to take me off the that's going to take me off the path that I 
I've set and I know this is where I want to go with this and this is why this is why I'm getting this information in my history and in the story and I think that to me at least from my experience has been if I can just let go and suspend my desire for the outcome that I want in this and because there's something there like what you said there's something that I want to make contact with and I don't really know where it's going to lead but there's just a there's a sense that I'm like yeah there's a curiosity there's a sense that this is important what I find interesting is a lot of times the patient may discount that they're like, oh, it's mm-hmm. maybe not that important. Oh, you know, whatever. And But you're like, no, no, no. Like, actually, can we talk about this a bit more? And I think that's where I think that whole area of safety is so critical because you want them to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go here with you on this. And I think it's something that you touched on in the last episode where you were talking about a study they did with doctors in Germany where they looked at, you know, how long did a patient talk, you know, if you just let them talk, right? And, and you know, I think it was what, 90 seconds or something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yep. And and so I think like that to me is like, is one of the gifts of telehealth is that you can, you can devote more time to that and explore it and get comfortable with being uncomfortable in making contact on some of those different elements. And that's what I think is, is that is just letting go of the outcome that I necessarily want. Absolutely. And in that same study that you just brought up, the physicians, I mean, I think it, I think it was unanimous in, in, them, in them saying that their patients told them things that were important and they wouldn't have wanted to interrupt them. They wouldn't have wanted to, so, to change the conversation in any way. And so I think that, oddly enough, if we're really being patient-centered, quote-unquote patient-centered or person-centered, I think we have to make the assumption that people are going to tell us the things that are important. (laughs) Like if we enter with that assumption, you know, that this person is not going to start talking about random things, you know, they are going to be telling us things that are important. And it's our job to start to sift through these things and gently make contact with things that we're hearing that sound that also sound like are important. And then kind of push pause a bit and say, you know, you may not want to interrupt them at, at that time, but you know, you might nod or you might go, oh, wow, that, that sounds really important. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Right. Or, or, or at a later date, ask them a little bit more about it. That's what I was just going to mention too, is that, you know, when you're having this conversation, it's not about like, especially if it's something that, you know, someone that you are just establishing a therapeutic relationship with, you're not necessarily going to go deep dive within the first two minutes of, you know, that conversation. And you might, you might need some time in that conversation, understanding their story where you maybe, you maybe sort of touch on a, a few more of the surface items, but then as you feel like relationship is building and that alliance is building that you can then circle back and say, you know, you mentioned something a few minutes ago about blank. Could we, could we come back to that? Mm-hmm. And now you've already established some contact, you've established some some trust there, some safety. And and now they're going to be much more open to looking at that. Whereas if you would have asked that five minutes earlier, it would have been a lot harder to have gone down that path, right? So I think that sometimes it's just letting go of this has to fit a sequence and 
depth has to be achieved. <laughs> like the submarine has to go straight down to get to the depth it needs. Like, no, you gotta, you gotta go gradually. Like you can't just happen, you know, in an instant and, and, and circling back. Like to me, it's like, I just always love that analogy of like peeling the layers of an onion. Like it's, and I mean, not, not that you want to do that because you'll water your eyes too much, but like, you know, this idea, like just, you, you got to sort of take it one step at a time and recognizing that for me, I think the patient leads that process. Like they are going to let you know if it's safe, if they feel safe enough to go there. Totally. I remember speaking with interviews in my study and, and one of the therapists spoke about a patient who, you know, had, he knew that this patient trusted him because he started telling him just without being prompted, started talking about a more personal aspect of how, of how his knee injury was influencing his sex life right? And it was unprompted and boom, the therapist knew, okay, this, this person is developing some trust in me because they're telling me about something more personal regarding their injury. Mm -hmm. And so, so exactly. Like, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's not about, oh, you're going to develop a relationship immediately or to have that as a goal, <laughs> right? It's, it's really about being present, being receptive and you also being genuine within that process and allowing the patient to be genuine within that process as well. And recognizing it's not a, a linear process, that there's going to be ways that you can circle back to things that's going to come up. And again, to me, it's like, if it's important enough, it's going to come up in different ways, right? It might come up in the story they share. It might come up as you're asking them to do certain movements or tests. It might come up as you're talking about a treatment plan. You know what I mean? Like, like to me, it's like, you know, we think that these points of contact have to be established in just one aspect of our, you know, interaction. It's in that history that that's where we have to make contact. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's the beauty of it is that it, it becomes a very fluid process. But I think that's where people sometimes get maybe a bit stressed out is, well, how do I do this? How do I open up those that conversation, right? And and I think that's what, you know, we've talked about too is is you brought up this idea of, you know, we have to focus on that principle first approach, right? It's it's not a recipe to have someone open up. <laughs> you know, it's focus on the curiosity, focus on being interested and and then letting that unfold from there. Yeah, exactly. This is there's a genuine sense that you want to get to know this person. But you also know and are making the assumption that this person is likely in a more vulnerable spot, you know, than you are, and that you're not opening a pop can, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, open the pop can and, you know, it's, you are allowing them to enter the space as, as they feel comfortable entering the space. And I think if you're genuine in that, people can sense that whether you're virtual or whether you're in person, right? By the tone of your voice, by, you know, your appearance of of being interested, you're leaning into the camera. So yeah, I think I think we have to trust a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Trust ourselves, trust, trust the interaction, trust the scenario. And, you know, and and when you're talking about, for example, you know, circling back, having a little notepad and telling people, Every once in a while, I may, write, I, I may look like I'm jotting something down, right? Um, it's just, you may have said something I want to follow up with you later with or something like that, you know, so that they understand that you're you're listening. And that can also be a cue to people that, oh, you're, you're really interested, right? You're, you're listening to me. Exactly. 
rather than assuming, oh, they must be distracted and bored <laughs> with this conversation, and they're looking at or their phone. Or they're looking down at their cell phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we both went to the same place. Oh, they're getting texted, yes. right? You know. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything else we want to cover here, uh, Maxie? Well, I'm thinking, I think we touched on collaboration, but I also think that there's an opportunity, and you can speak to this because you're doing telehealth with folks right now, but there's an opportunity to to really hone our collaborative skills and open up to collaboration because we're literally in different spaces, in different physical spaces. And so you can open up to, to patients, you coming into their world and collaborating in their world. Yeah. But also actually facilitating that more, prepping the patient for the fact that you're going to maybe collaborate more. You're going to be asking them to, to guide you a little bit more with what's happening in their world. And I think that you spoke to it really beautifully in the in terms of self-touch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I need you to be my hands for me, right? Wow, that's just, just totally like a beautiful sentiment. But wow, that's totally collaborative. <laughs> so I think it's important. Yeah, I think that collaboration piece, it requires some creativity on the part of you as a therapist to say, how do I, how do I achieve, you know, the goal of maybe it's a particular evaluation or it's something that you want them to work on and, and you're having to improvise in terms of the, the types of tools and things that you would use to, to help them do that. And, and I think it's, it's so powerful when you can just ask for permission. Mm-hmm. When you just say, would this work for you, right? Can we try this? I think that this idea of of experimentation is so powerful because that in, implies a collaboration, right? If if we say, look, I don't I don't know if this is going to work, and you just sort of almost prep <laughs> that way, like you're you're prepping the expectation to say, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but could we try this? Can we just do a little experiment here? Could you do da-da-da, right? And and now they're a part of that experiment because you're asking them to be a part of that experience. And to me, that just is 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 a really open way of doing it that holds the outcome more loosely. And then I think also it keeps us from judging because really we are, we're just saying, hey, let's try this together. And we don't know how it's going to work. <laughs> so, and I'm going to go back to principle again, right? Even a definition. When we talk about an alliance, the therapeutic alliance or the working alliance is really, really what it's about is you and another person or people are working towards a common goal right? You're working together, you're allies, right? And so you're agreeing on the goals of therapy. You're agreeing on the tasks of therapy, right? And so agreeing doesn't necessarily mean you suggest they agree, they nod, (laughs) right? That, That development of the tasks, the development of the goals, right? That's a part of it. And that's where you start to develop a bond. You start to develop trust, right? So, trust, respect. There's also an ownership in, in the process, right? Like when, when you ask the patient to get involved and they are bringing their creativity to the table, they're bringing their curiosity to the table, they're more engaged and own the outcome too. So, they, they want to see it succeed, right? So, I think that rather than it being like, well, it's all up to me as a therapist. If I can't figure this out in terms of how you're going to do this in this virtual environment, then I have failed, right? It's like, no, no, okay, we, we, let's come up with something here, right? And, you know, okay, oh, you don't have, you don't have this piece of equipment at home. Okay, well, let's, let's 
what else do you have, right? Like you sort of make them a part of that process. And, and now they're going to also be committed to wanting to see that be successful as well. And I think that that, and again, it's, I think the hard part with that is sometimes you have to improvise in the moment and you have to suspend the outcome as you explore that together, I think is, is, has been something that I've found. Suspend the outcome, suspend your expectations of the outcome. Yeah. And that requires some trust because you've got to be trust in yourself, trust in the process. Totally. Right. And so we, we've talked, okay. So like, I don't know what, how, how many podcasts it was ago where we talked about that idea of focusing on the outcome. And when we focus on the outcome and don't hold space for the process, we don't necessarily get to our outcomes. No. Right. But it's, but actually the trusting in the process of our creativity our communication skills, that the patient, assuming that the patient wants to be engaged, right? And, and that those those solutions can come from them as well. Trusting in that, that's a that's a challenging thing. So and we can get pulled out of that state of of curiosity and responsiveness into I'm gonna solve this problem. Right. And leave the patient out of it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think the, the awareness of when we're doing that is important. This platform could facilitate that. Yeah. And I think it I think it comes full circle back to where we started the conversation in terms of safety is that if our nervous system as therapists is in a fight or flight or moving in that place, it's very hard to be curious in that state, right? You, you like that executive and creative functioning in your brain is not, not happening, <laughs> you know? And so I, you know, I like, obviously we want to create that safety in the patient. We want to help, you know, so, or, or at least create a, an environment that supports that safety. But I think we then, in order for that to take place and for that curiosity to really flourish, I think it requires us as therapists to also ensure that we're not elevating our nervous system response and totally losing that opportunity for creativity and curiosity. Yeah, no, we shut down. So when you're when when you go into that fight or flight, you 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 close down to relationship, right? It's about survival, right? And so you narrow you narrow your your perspective. Your brain doesn't process in a way that's necessarily creative. Now, sympathetic activation can be your friend in that, right? So as well. So I'm talking about sympathetic activation where you're going into fight or flight right? You're threatened. You feel threatened and you are, you're, you're narrowing down, right? But for example, I've started taking a new approach just with, you know, my projects and things that I'm working on where I'm going, I'm, I go into burst mode. Mm. I'm going, okay, I'm actually a bit lazy right now. I'm feeling a bit like I'm, you know, lollygagging a bit. I need to burst. I need a burst of energy. I need a burst of a thought process. And that's sympathetically activating myself so that I'm, uh, it actually helps me be creative. Yeah, exactly. There is a balancing place with that. But yeah, definitely something that you want to think about. I think even just as you reflect on your sessions, whether that's in person or whether that's telehealth is how creative was I in terms of coming up with the, you know, collaborating with the patient on a solution. And if you're like, Meh, I was not creative at all. I was trying to default to my standard, you know, care and it was stressing me out and I didn't really know where I was going with that. I think that's a really good place to say, well, hang on a second. Was I feeling stressed? What, well, like what was keeping me from being mm -hmm. in a place of creativity and curiosity? I think that can just be a really good learning, ex you know, experience for us as we go through that so that we can actually then, 
you know, maybe set the stage, prep the patient, prep ourselves better, ground ourselves more effectively so that we actually can support and facilitate that curiosity and, and that creativity that's just crucial, especially when we're dealing with a different clinical environment. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll, I'll say this over and over and over again as well. And we have even in the session, but throughout maybe every podcast, this might come up. The fact that we, this is a reflective process. And so our reflection in action and a reflection on action before, after the fact, but also in, in the fact too, if we're, if we're able to do that is absolutely necessary for you know, for personal growth, any kind of growth that we want. So if we want to grow in our ability to be better therapists, we have to be able to reflect, right? And we have to be able to reflect on the relationships and and how we interact with people. Just like we would reflect on, hmm, did I mobilize that, you know, joint appropriately? Or you know what I mean? Like we reflecting on those sorts of things, but also reflecting on how we interact. Absolutely. Reflection is key. We have talked about that a few times. <laughs> Just once or twice. Just once or twice. I think that wraps up our session today. We hope that everyone has found this helpful in terms of diving into these specifics of, of therapeutic relationship as it relates to telehealth. Yeah, look forward to the, the next episode. And uh, we're not quite sure what we're covering next time, but I'm sure it will be something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mind-blowing. It'll sure be something. It'll be something. That's exactly. what it will be. <laughs> Awesome. Well, take care, everyone, and uh, till next episode. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on iTunes as this just helps more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.